Hey everyone, Jack here. I joined Mike Ippolito on his show today, the weekly roundup for On The Margin. You can follow On The Margin on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel where Forward Guidance also is aired by clicking the link at the top of the description. Thanks. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by Hollywood Jack Farley. Jack, welcome back, buddy. Great to be here, two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row, this is gonna be a lot of fun. As always, Mark, we miss you. He's having a little little jaunt out in Europe. So, Mark, we wish you well. But, Jack, this is going to be a fun one. We've got some interesting topics to cover. Yes, we do. What yeah. should we start with? Well, uh, I know you as a new AI expert would really prefer if we started with AI. But I want to I drag you into the macro a little bit and actually give you a, a compliment on your, your most recent episode of Forward Guidance that you did with Robert McCauley of BIS fame. What an episode. Just tour de force of if you're interested in monetary plumbing, euro dollar markets, just how it all kind of comes together on the global stage. Couldn't do much better than this guy. Thought it was one of the most uh, interesting episodes you've done in a while. And that's a high bar. Well, first off, thank you for recognizing me uh, as my pivot towards an AI expert. Uh, I mean, there's just so much going on in AI. Uh, you know, Every day, there's just like 20 things. It's just like, Tuesday is totally different world than Monday, you know, and that's just Wednesday, totally different world than, than Tuesday. But I guess if you want to talk macro, um, <laughs> fine. Uh, yeah, Ro- I mean, Robert McCauley, th- thanks for the kind words. He is uh, a world renowned expert on euro dollars and the global dollar system. And he's someone who has really you know, tracked all around the world, tracking euro dollars, measuring them, counting them, uh, f- finding dollar swaps. So I feel like there's a misunderstanding about the euro dollar system that no one knows it's like where where is it everything it's like it's like well people people know if you if you follow it i mean there's a lot of papers written about it and i, I think the first chart that yep. that we have is actually uh something written by the bank for international settlements where where he worked uh starting in you know i think this paper is from 1964 so robert mccauley is really covering uh he's really carrying the torch of central bankers who are studying the euro dollar system uh, with actually a large amount of success. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you there, Jack. I think it's it's always been portrayed as this sort of shadowy secondary market for offshore dollars that no one has any transparency into. And, you know, Jeff Snyder, who is, I think most folks will sort of identify him with being uh, associated with euro dollars and just explaining how that system works. You know, the Fed has been aware of this system for quite a long time. So I would completely agree with you there. And, you know, your, uh, your, your episode with Robert actually inspired, I'm going to show my own newsletter that I ended up writing yesterday. It was, there was a little anecdote that he told about a bank failure that happened back in 1974, the failure of Franklin National Bank. It was very interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, it obviously mimicked, it was very similar to the, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. It's hard not to draw a comparison, both in terms of relative size of the U.S. banking industry at the time but also because of an interesting little precedent that we'll talk about in terms of the euro dollar market. One funny story about that bank that you guys didn't even touch on on that episode, but I started to dive into is the colorful history of the majority owner of Franklin National Bank at that time was a mafia banker named Michel Sindona. I think I'm pronouncing that right. This was like a larger than life story. He, this guy got his start over in Italy, bought up a whole bunch of banks, actually got very cozy with the Vatican and I believe managed either a very large financial portfolio for them or even led the Vatican banking arm, which is super interesting. In addition to that, because 
Vatican banking was not subject to the same level of KYC AML that the rest of the banking is subject to, he actually ended up funneling a bunch of money for the CIA to various insurgencies and was a prominent banker for the Sicilian mafia. <laughs> what a colorful character. Then this guy decides that he wants to own a bank in the United States, right? This is this stuff that I'm doing in Italy. This is pretty good. But really what I want to do, I want to go to the big time here, the big apple where the show is. And he selects this little bank on Long Island called Franklin National Bank. The way he acquires this bank is really interesting as well. So he knows, right? Uh, colorful sort of checkered past Michelle Sendona. He couldn't just walk in and become a majority owner of their bank. So what he actually does is have uh, someone named Lawrence Tisch uh, acquire the shares, um, get a seat on the board, et cetera, et cetera. Then a conflict of interest is manufactured for Lawrence so that he has to sell his shares. Mm. Who does he choose to sell these shares to, Jack? Well, I've got a willing buyer in the form of Michelle Sendona. Bing, bang, boom. So he ends up selling his shares. That's how Michelle uh, sort of takes control of, of this bank. This was 1972. 1973 is the year where the fixed currency exchange rate, there was a, a, uh, a, a component of the Bretton Woods system. We finally abandoned that. We say, look, guys, this is not working. And ma most major currencies are allowed to float. So there's a huge boom in foreign exchange activity at that point. Michelle ultimately decides that he wants to get in that game. He pushes Franklin National Bank to become a large uh, speculator in Forex markets. A lot of those bets go against him. Tail as old as time. He ends up, the bank ends up losing 98% of their profit over the course of the next two years. He defrauds the bank of $30 million. He urges the bank to get a, a bailout of over a billion dollars from the Fed. And the whole thing ends up going kaput. He would later go on to <laughs> hire a couple of Sicilian hitmen to kill the lawyer who liquidated the bank, ends up wow. going to jail for doing that. And he dies of cyanide poisoning, either from suicide or uh, from being murdered. And the last little conspiracy theory, this is unproven, but he is uh, said to be associated with the murder of uh, a pope, John Paul I, um, who is the shortest serving pope on record. This is unconfirmed, but I mean, how there isn't a Netflix documentary about this guy, I have no idea in this entire story. But the interesting thing that Robert McCauley pointed out in this whole thing is when Franklin National Bank was undergoing stress and the Fed was opening up the discount window to them, there were the Long Island branches, which are based in the US, but then there also were a Caribbean and a London branch. And critically, the London branch, this is where the euro dollar component goes in. And euro dollars, offshore dollars, not in the US. Offshore dollars. Yeah, exactly. So it's do dollars that are you know, deposited in an offshore bank and then lent against, and there end up being a bunch of dollar-deposited, uh, dollar-denominated assets that aren't actually subject to some of the same capital requirements and insurance requirements. So it's cheaper. That was another very interesting point. You can actually lend, borrow, lend in a more capital-efficient way because it's not subject to the same U.S. regulations. So basically, there was a the euro-dollar deposits had a fixed um, uh, term limit, and they were sort of the hot money foreign exchange speculators. And there was this question of that's where a lot of the, the the trouble was coming from. So there was a question for the Fed. What FNB wanted to do was use the collateral that it had over in its London branch. They wanted the Fed to lend against that, basically open the discount window to lend against and sort of indirectly shore up this euro dollar system. And there was a question of, well, is the Fed going to do it? Is it in their interest? And they ended up doing that. That was a precedent that stood through many other sort of uh, 
when a when a US owned bank has a foreign branch sort of that operates in the euro dollar system and they got in trouble, the Fed would also help them out. I think Continental Illinois in 1984 is an example of that. But uh, only recently, with a failure of Silicon Valley Bank that had a, where was the branch again? I'm going to blank. I think it was in a, it was in the Bahamas or the Caribbean or something like that. Oh, but, right. I forget. Yeah, but it was in the Caribbean. I can, I can find but, it. Yeah. But it had some, it had some uh, depositors there who were not, were not given the same guarantees, basically, of uh, that, that U.S. depositors were. So it was a very important precedent that sort of got broken. And Robert McCulley posed the question of, is this going to be a big deal or not? And it could be, right, if we were to put on our dramatic caps here, Jack, could be seen as the U.S. sort of withdrawing support from this very critical monetary system in the form of the euro dollar system. So if you're just kind of a, a history buff and kind of a finance nerd, this is a really interesting story to dig into. But I just found it an interesting little anecdote. Yeah, that, that is a fascinating story. So I, I looked up, it was where else? The, the Cayman Islands where Silicon <laughs> Valley Bank uh, yeah. had depositors who were not immediately bailed out by the FDIC. It's it's tough to say. Uh, I mean, in a year, they could, they could be made whole because the assets are, are there. I, I don't know. But they did not receive that sort of instant uh, bailout, bail, you know, uh, assistance from the FDIC. I think there is a difference between uh, Franklin National Bank and Silicon Valley Bank in that mm. it sounds like, I mean, you, you said the story, they made all of these speculative bets that was kind of proprietary trading with uh, clients' money. It sounds like, like FDX, which, you know, if we'll have time, we'll, we'll touch on at the end. Uh, but if we, uh, if we can go to slide five, I think yep. that is actually making the same mistake as this uh, Financial Times article, and I know the articles are not, you know, written by the journalists. The the, um, the t titles. So the title is "Bank of America Nurses a Hundred Billion Dollar Paper Loss After Big Bet in the Bond Market." Now, bet make means that they're kind of making a, a wager, a bet, a, a speculation about whether interest rates are going to go up or down. If they stay down, they'll make money because their net interest margin will go up. If they go up, they're going to lose money. But really, if you have, you know, Bank of America is one of the largest money centers in the world. And if you have hundreds of billions of dollars flooding into your bank, uh, you know, from March 2020 to uh, probably, you know, the end of 2021, you're going to have to put that money somewhere. So it's not as if, you know, you or I or someone else, someone watching this who has a brokerage account is like, oh, I'm long options on TLT, I'm short puts, I'm doing... It's like, it's not the same thing. I wouldn't call it a wager. Similarly, Silicon Valley Bank uh, did not really make a wager. They just had a huge influx of deposits and they uh, managed their asset liabilities really poorly. But it wasn't some sort of, you know, they weren't going to have to make a windfall by, you know, owning agency mortgage-backed securities with a coupon of 2.5. Um how I, I do, you know, I have no kind words to say about Silicon Valley Bank and its management. And actually, there was a podcast uh, I listened to recently, but the podcast was filmed in, I think, September of 2022. And the CEO was quite prideful talking about how amazing his firm was and how everyone he meets wants to work there and wants to bank with them. And I mean, at the time, that was true. I think their deposits tripled. Uh, which is you know not stable uh, unless it's over a period of many years, and uh, I don't know. It just kind of reminds me. I've been consuming a lot of Titanic content because of the recent <laughs> news, and it's you know it's just like the ship can never sink. Uh, so it's important to to stay humble, not only for because you should stay humble, but uh, you know, pride goes b b before the fall.
Yeah. I, the, um, so just well, to- also, sorry, sorry. F- final thing. If we can just go to this, uh, bank of bank of America, paper yeah, loss, sure. it's I'm also, this is not a humble thing, but it's like, you're, you're late, you know? Uh, <laughs> if you see me below on March 15th, I was talking about how they had $113 billion of unrealized loss. Uh, this represents 60% of tangible book value. Did bank of America was properly hedged for these losses? I actually think they were, but not as many brilliant, and I sincerely mean brilliant, sort of hedge fund managers say with interest rate swaps, they were a net uh, payer of interest rates, meaning they were actually hedging that interest rates would go down, not not up, because mm. they accurately perceived that they would make a ton of money if interest rates went up and because their deposit costs would stay low. So they, they're, the, this is what I've kind of learned about banking is it's not, oh, it's not like you have a portfolio and you're a hedge fund manager, prop trading. Oh my God, I have these swaps. I have these, I'm short this, I'm long that against that. So much of the business of banking is based on assumptions about the fundamental business and how money will flow within to and out from the organization with what time, in what order, and specifically at what price, that that is what really matters much more than the swaps. So even though Bank of America actually was, and I'll repeat this, a they were short uh swaps that that in, the hedge that interest rate would go up not long them for a variety of reasons but their interest rate costs or deposit costs are still so low i think they're um i mean it's from like a month ago but their spot deposit cost for individuals is still like you know l- mm. much less than 100 basis points for biz- businesses are starting to say hey come on um but i actually think bi- the big banks are in a good place in that they won't have to raise deposit costs, unlike many regional banks, which are having uh, a lot of problems because deposit costs are going up. And that those issues will only get worse because as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates more, which it seems likely that they will. Sorry, Mike, I've been rambling. Yo, go on. No, 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 that's, um, that's really helpful. And I just want to draw a line and underscore the point that you made uh, earlier that you know, Silicon Valley Bank is not necessarily like, there, there are differences, right? Not all of these bank failures are the same. I will say the common element I think, as, as you brilliantly put in your interview, is that uh, duration mismatch is typically at the scene of the crime. It was for Franklin National Bank back in the day. Those euro dollar deposits, the funding rate on them was fixed and very short. The bond investment, the bond portfolio that they had was much longer. That always just makes it extremely difficult. In addition to the crazy forex speculation that they were doing, which frankly would never would never fly today. But yeah, you were absolutely right uh, early and right about the the losses on. Bank of America's portfolio as well. Can we just get an update overall, Jack? What's going on in the banking system? You know, we had all of these failures that seem, I know time is a flat circle in the age of social media, but gosh, Jack, this was probably three, four months ago, right? That this was all happening. So what's been going on since then? And I guess the question that I ultimately want to sort of lead you to is, do we have an impending credit event? Chair Powell in various FOMCs have commented that stress in the banking system is equivalent, in a sense, to an additional rate hike, obviously, because banks will be less willing to extend loans and credit. So, you know, give us, give us a sense of what what are how are things in the banking system today? So I would say the fundamentals uh, relative to, let's say, March 10th or March 12th mm. are a lot better than the uh the the fears the worst fears at the time and you're you're not seeing systemic runs on banks uh they're more of a bank walk than a bank run <laughs> and you know generally banks are are holding on to deposits so it's not a liquidity issue it is a price issue it is mm. the fact that 
oh, they they can get money. They can get deposits to fund their loan. They're going to be fine, but they're going to be paying 4% on those loans. They're going to be paying 5% on their loans. So their net interest margin is getting squished. And mm. then if it's a publicly traded stock, because their earnings are going to be squished, the stock goes down. And then if the stock goes down, people say, hey, why is the stock going down? I I'm, I'm, may just withdraw and de- you know, deposit it at Citi or, or JP Morgan. So the, the fundamentals are, are okay. And I would actually say, relative to fears in March, I would venture to say they're actually good re- on a relative basis. Uh, the stocks are don't are actually reflect a little bit more pessimism. Uh, you're not seeing oh, you know, a, a regional bank was down eighty percent in March, but now it's back to where it was in February. No, it struggled. I mean, you have had some pretty epic uh, volatility in, in PacWest, which you know was up probably fifty bucks, thirty bucks last year. Uh, fifty bucks was probably around the peak, and then it went down to fifteen and looks cheap. Then it looked down to ten, and it went down to as low as like a do- a little under two dollars, and now it's at about eight. Um, I mean, there are a few more that actually don't get a lot of like First Foundation, uh, Hope, uh, First. I mean, so there are a lot of banks, regional bank stocks that are trading at you know twenty percent of book value to sixty percent of book value, and that seems a little worrisome. Like what? What are stock investors? Why are they putting such a large discount on on things? But uh, you know, on a historical basis, I mean, the fact that a, a bank is going to trade above book value it's kind of a pretty optimistic, rosy scenario. And mm. maybe maybe only like the best banks in the the world deserve such a valuation. Um, so that is so far that that is uh, what we know. Uh, if you talk about bank lending. In a handful of regional banks, where I mean more than a handful, but not not a ton of regional banks and not known systemic, they are pulling back on lending. And it's it's not like, oh yeah, well, maybe pull back a little bit. It's like we have to pull back because you know, 30% of our deposits left, we're funding it with brokered deposits or uh CDs or uh borrowing from the Federal Home Loan Bank or the Federal Reserve. By the way, everyone thinks the Federal Reserve is so important. They've lent about $100 billion in outstanding loans to banks via the bank term funding program and the discount window, mainly bank term funding program now for a variety of reasons that we can get into. Uh, but the Federal Home Loan Bank is by far the biggest, the, such a bigger lender. I mean, I think their outstanding loans to the banking system is a trillion dollars, over a trillion dollars. Mm. And uh, now it may be a not 10 times more economically impactful on liquidity because the Federal Reserve prints money. Sorry if you're sort of triggered by that, but they do. Whereas the uh, Federal <laughs> Home Loan Bank uh, issues bo- not bo- uh, bonds and notes to fund its the advances that it makes to banks. And there are regional banks. And I just did actually a really good interview with a professor uh, of law from Columbia about the Federal Home Loan Bank. He's a, an expert. And that interview should uh, air next week. So folks should, should check that out. So uh, bank line, I mean, look, I think the earnings start report in July 12th, July 14th. So we're going to get a, a bigger picture of how much uh, the banks actually are lending. But I, I feel like I've paid less, at- less attention to the macro of what is overall bank credit. I mean, I, I think it has not contracted, but it has uh, the, the growth of credit has gone down way, way, way down. And I focus more on individual banks that are, you know, because I'm a journalist, I'm, I'm you focus on the drama, like like a lot of people. And individual banks uh, that are having issues, by definition, they're going to have contracting credit. Like, I mean, PacWest just not only is it, you know, contracting credit, 
but it is not making new loans. It is it just sold, I think, $2 billion worth of loans to, I forget who they sold it to, a, a, perhaps a pri- private lender. So a lot of private lenders are getting really excited. Oh, we can buy all these loans that yield you know 12% because the banks were kind of you know, profit from their, from their uh, struggles. And yeah, the, the PacWest deal is hard to determine the pricing. Uh, it was about the $2 billion uh, face value, like a little over $2 billion, but it's like, what did they actually make those loans at? So, I mean, that's a very, very long-winded of saying, I don't know, and I will be paying very close attention to the bank earnings that uh, are released in mid-July. I would make the caveat, though, that let's say bank credit growth slow, uh, you know, it slowed from you know, 40% to uh, you know, 10%. I'm just making those numbers. It, credit growth is slowing, but it's slowing from a ridiculous, I would say, like, bubble-icious level. Yeah. Um, bank credit growth was immense. There was immense monetary inflation in 2022, not mm. monetary deflation. Monetary inflation is the level of bank lending. And there's an incredible amount of bank lending in 2022. And it was actually, I think, higher than 2021. Uh, but this is also people focus too much on banks. There wasn't any money printing in 2021 and 2020. It was all in securities. The Federal Reserve did a ton of quantitative easing and there was a huge boom in uh, bonds. I mean, like in March 2020, you went from you know Berkshire Hathaway not being able to to issue a bond, and then a few months later, because of quantitative easing, you had cruise lines issuing bonds at very attractive you know low rates. And I mean, the cruise industry is totally changed because of uh, um, you know COVID and, and all that, and it's still struggling. Um, by the way, I actually think that total random fact: uh, mm. Royal Caribbean cruises uh, tickers RCL. I actually think they are kind of the uh, ancestor of the company that owned the Titanic. So, you know, things live on. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. You've been in crypto for a while. You know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the one that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, roll-ups, account abstraction, MEV, app change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods20, and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. Mm, they really do. History does not repeat, but it does certainly rhyme. Now, you mentioned quantitative easing there, Jack. I wanted to surface a... I'm going to return to the the stress in the banking system and a potential credit event, but I want to I want to talk a little bit. You mentioned quantitative easing. I want to give a shout out to cross-border capitalist Michael Howell, who's been a frequent guest of both Ford Guidance and On the Margin. So shout out, Michael. He put out a great piece in the Financial Times, which I think was a, it was a very timely piece because it, the the time of the title of the piece is the return of quantitative easing. This is a bold, pretty contrarian piece to put out amongst the calls that <clears throat> the the era of easy money and liquidity is over. We are never going back to quantitative easing, et cetera, et cetera. And Michael put out the basically a piece saying the opposite of that. So I'm going to share my screen here and just you know you can actually see the link to the Financial Times article, but. Jack, I'm curious to get your thoughts. You've done an interview recently with Michael. So I don't know if you want to kind of sum up the the argument and then maybe you and I can bat the idea around a little bit. Yeah, I'm, Michael is a world foremost expert on liquidity, a topic that's 
very poorly understood and you know, hard to even define, let alone measure, let alone predict, let alone predict how it will impact asset prices. Uh, and you know, I mean, Michael Howell has, I would say, objectively have a he's had a very hot hand for uh, at mm. least two years. I mean, he predicted liquidity would decline in 2022. Uh, you know, pivoted with very you know alacrity and good timing in maybe October November, uh, which is when the bottom bottom in asset prices was. And you know, I'm glad I interviewed him in maybe January February, and he was bullish. And it kind of balanced out the forward guidance, um, you know, coverage. So it it wasn't their vision, uh, you know. Um, and, he, and he's been very right. And I, I think there are a variety of uh, technical reasons why his measure of liquidity, other measures of liquidity, might have increased, even as the Fed's balance sheet has continued to decline because of quantitative tightening. Uh, although there is a tiny little spike, not tiny, but there is a spike uh, in. The, the Fed's lending to the discount window and the bank term funding program. Um, so I, I, roughly those reasons are, okay, the, the debt ceiling, it's a deficit. Uh, Treasury's not issuing bonds, so that's more cash for the private sector. Bond volatility has gone down. Uh, equity volatility has gone down. And when volatility goes down, investors can take more risk because you know if volatility is at 20 and they have a certain holding if volatility gets cut in half, uh, they they can take afford to take a lot more positions because things will move less, and that's why you know things in markets are kind of self fulfilling prophecies, and um, so that that is one factor. The reverse repo is being drained. I, that's been very prescient, and that's continued to drain quite noticeably over the past month. Um, so that's kind of an inert pool of money at the Federal Reserve uh, when people are you know withdrawing money from banks and putting it into money market funds. Actually, a lot of it a lot of it goes into the reverse repo facility. Uh, I could go on, but the, the fundamental fact is that interest rates are have risen 500 basis points in a year, and they will probably continue to rise. Perhaps they will rise even twice, and we'll get to 5.75 percent on rates, which is you know pretty stunning for you and I who are you know in our adult lives. You know we we all know uh, zero interest rates, <laughs> and then quantitative tightening is still there. So I I. Like it's the type of thing where you know Michael knows five thousand times more about this than I do, so it's like, do I even value my own opinion? Uh, and I don't know if I do, but I'll nonetheless share it, which is I think all of those factors are sort of technical reasons why liquidity has increased. And I don't think the Federal Reserve looks upon that with a lot of pleasure. Uh, I you know I don't know if Jay Powell is happy that the S and P five hundred is at you know close to forty five hundred. Uh, pretty pretty crazy to say. And Apple's, you know, close to being a three trillion dollar company. Um, you know, Nvidia over over a trillion dollars. I, I could go on. I think that those are all technical factors, and that in order for liquidity to continue to increase, the Federal Reserve will have to do overt quantitative easing. And I don't think the Fed will do it. So that's that's my view. Yeah, I think that this is a complicated topic. I like the way that Michael summed it up, and that you know, if I had to distill his complex argument down into a couple of sentences, what I would say is that the fiscal authorities globally, but especially in the US, have an extremely aggressive plan. The plan is to run a two, $2 trillion per year deficit. In order to finance that, you need to sell bonds. And the global investor base that are interested in US bonds is lower than it used to be for a whole myriad of reasons. So frankly, at the end of the day, it becomes something of a supply and demand problem. And the question that everyone's been asking for a long time, that frankly, the warriors have been wrong about, is who are going to buy all of these bonds? 
And we've asked this on the show before. I don't have a great answer for you. This has launched, frankly, a thousand podcasts and Twitter debates and yada, yada. What does it mean that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet keeps going up? I don't have a great answer for you. What I, what I, what I do think is well, that- Well, it has been going down since September. Correct. For various periods of time, you know, since 08, it's been able to taper off a little bit, but never really that meaningfully. You know, that, that, that balance sheet seems to be the one number that we've been told many times that these bond purchases are going to be temporary, yada, yada. We will roll off, roll them off the Fed's balance sheet eventually, but it's been a very steady one-way street up. So, you know, I, I can't, yeah, I, I can't give you an exact mechanical, you know, definition of, of what that is, but it feels, you know, just over the course of the last almost 20 years now that they have been very unsuccessful in getting that number down. And the relationship here that Michael has drawn is in between, if you're following along via video, in between Fed liquidity and the Fed balance sheet. And, you know, to, to summarize, they're, they're very directly related. So when the Fed is increasing their balance sheet, liquidity is going up and the opposite is the reverse. So the question ultimately ends up being, if you accept that relationship is true, and you accept the idea that the Fed has an enormous issuance plan for U.S. Treasuries going out into the future, and there are less folks that are interested in buying those treasuries than there used to be, then the only way you can make that math work is that the Fed has to ramp up their bond buying program again at some point, which is QE. So that's that's the argument. I, I, I think it's really tough to say how it's eventually going to play out, but I see I see the point he's making. And frankly, he's been pretty right about this year so far. Or lo- uh, long-term interest rates on you know long-term treasuries have to rise. There, there's going to be a bid for for anything. Um, you know, there's stocks trading at a penny. There's a bid for it at, at a certain price. True. So you know that it could mean ten year goes back over four percent. And I don't know if the the Federal Reserve, at least, would view that with with any sort of uh, uh, you know displeasure. Perhaps perhaps the Treasury would. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Michael's been very very right. Uh, but I don't know if Powell was going to do it. I just feel like he's not going to do it. Well, the there's there's the question if there's the question again if the the Fed doesn't have as much control over the the longer end of the curve, right? So they have an enormous amount of control. Obviously, obviously they directly control Fed funds, but everything up to about the the five year, right? They've got a pretty decent amount of control over. So you're absolutely right. The 10-year could go above 4%. I think the market would have to be convinced that there was a real growth story there, which you know this could all change in, frankly, six to nine months, and the narrative could shift and investors might be. So so you know who knows? Um, but I think that's, the, that's what would sort of need to, to change. Well, what a great segue. I don't know. Actually, yeah, that's the chart. Um, chart nine is... Uh, just showing GDP from previous quarter, and uh, the first quarter GDP was revised up to two percent uh, quarterly GDP uh, on an annualized rate, and that is real GDP adjusted for uh, inf- inflation. And so, in the first quarter of 2022, very you know negative GDP. Then the second quarter of 2022, less negative. Third quarter, fourth quarter. Of 2022 and first quarter of 2023, it's been three positive uh, GDP growth in, in a row. I mean, which which would support the view that uh, technically there, there was a very very mild recession in the beginning of 2022, and that we reemerged from it and we 
have not been in a recession for a while and we are not in a recession for a while. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of people who think that the ec- economy is much, much worse than the official data suggests, uh, both in GDP as well as in the la- the labor market. But you know, I've I've got to give credit to to people who have said, nope, this economy will be resilient and growth will remain uh, um, high. So you know, got to got to give credit to, uh, credit is due when the when the data comes out and uh, validates validates their view, especially when it. it um, you know, has been so for for three quarters in a row. I would note that a lot of this is real GDP inflation adjusted. A lot mm. of this is inflation itself coming down, and mm. uh, you know, growth. Let me one second. Uh, growth was six point one percent. Not bad at all. I you know, I'll take that any day. But uh, the PCE price index was four point one percent. So you, the difference between that is is real GDP. If uh, PCE, uh, the measure of inflation, the other one being CPI, was 6.1%, you know, real GDP would be zero. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the data in, in front of me, but so much of the reason why you had negative um, real GDP growth in the first quarter of 2022 and the second quarter of 2022, uh, the first quarter, actually, a lot of stuff that over my head, imports, exports, I, I think, but the second quarter, the price of oil was at $120 in June. So mm-hmm. you know, the economy was not... Uh, you know, in a depression by any means. I mean, the unemployment rate was very, very low. Uh, you know, the labor market was very, very tight. Spending was very, very high. It's just that the price of oil was at one hundred twenty dollars. So inflation, I mean, what did it peak at? A, you know, uh, high, you know, eight or nine percent. And if if inflation was still at eight or nine percent, I mean, this this thing would look very different. So, yeah, this this has a lot to do with inflation and falling inflation. So, uh, the distant, the soft landing people. Who you know they they were mocked and uh, they they were people who mocked them were absolutely wrong. I think that uh, soft landing folks, the data has has validated their view. And you know, I mean, in in October, sometime in the fall of last year, Bloomberg, okay, not some random you know YouTube channel. Bloomberg had a one hundred percent recession odds. Okay, mm. and so soft landing people were you know not popular. You know, they you if you were soft landing. Uh, view you you wouldn't uh, share that view you know at the at the economist cocktail party. Well, you know now everyone wants to hear from them, and you know I think they they deserve it. A lot of uh, mainstream economists who called for a recession in this year they're pushing it back to 2024, and some are calling that a hack move. I disagree. I think that there's a lot of stuff in the t- in the pipeline which could slow the economy, and you know uh, you got you got to. You got to be aware of those risks. All right, Jack. So I I want to get your opinion on something. We've talked about this on on previous episodes. And frankly, if you're listening to this and you've heard me pose this this mental pretzel that I'm in uh, too many times, I, I apologize. <laughs> but I think there's a couple of different ways to sort of view what what I view as kind of a limbo that we're in right now. So let me give you two stories and just see which one resonates with you. So. Last year was the worst year going back, I think, to the beginning of these indices, right, for the 60-40 bond portfolio or 60-40 portfolio, you know, bonds and stocks. So obviously, some amount of mean reversion is inevitable, right? We're always going to get that bounce. Bear markets, you know, and price movement typically doesn't go down in a straight line. There is a relief rally. And in fact, some of the the, the most face-ripping short-term rallies actually happened during bear markets. So one one way that you could construct what's going on in, in the markets today is that that's just what we're seeing. 
right? There's there's always going to be some amount of mean reversion after a horrendous year like last year. That's what we're seeing. And then there's going to be another leg down. This chart sort of supports that. We're looking at leading and coincident economic indicators, leading being things like manufacturing, coincident being things like unemployment, things like that. So the leading economic indicators have sharply turned down. The coincident economic indicators have remained robust. But you can, in the past, see a pattern of, as per their names, right, the leading indicators turned down first, and they're almost always followed by a turn down in coincident economic indicators. Yeah, and Mike, actually, a somewhat steep fall in the red line, the leading indicators. Mm. Going back to 1959, has there ever been a steep fall in the red line that wasn't followed by... A recession, which is shown as a you know a light blue column, I don't see any. I mean, you know, you know, funnily enough, though, if you look at that period from seventy nine to about eighty three, it was a very steep fall in the red line, the leading economic indicators. But the coincident ones, although there were two recessions during that period, they were remarkably stable. And yeah, and, and there were recessions because you know growth was at seven, but inflation was at eleven. You know what I mean? So. Right. It, it's that's still a recession and people struggle economically, but fundamentally different from a 2008 or a 19, you know, the Great Depression where where there's uh, absolutely, absolutely. So that's one story. The other story is the story that you just laid out, which was, you know, for whatever reasons, X, Y and Z, the soft, the hard landing that everyone was so dead set on didn't end up coming. The economy was much more robust. Uh, companies were able to protect their earnings and for a large part, their margins. I know that's been turning around, but you know, for the most part, they've held up extremely well. Perhaps it was just the raw amount of liquidity and stimulus that got introduced into the system that has protected us. But maybe we can get that soft landing. They're not completely unprecedented throughout history. So, I mean, which one of those stories, Jack, do you think sort of resonates a little bit more with you? Oh, that's a good. That's a good question. So... I'll say this, that even if the leading indicators are right and that that blue line does fall quite sharply end of this year or the beginning of next year. So even, you know, the red line folks, the leading indicator folks who've been calling for recession for over a year now, they will declare victory. I think that is grossly inappropriate because they were early and early is the same thing as being wrong. Uh, Mm. Do I think they will continue to be wrong? I probably would think not. I think I would probably throw my hat in with the people who've been wrong over the past year rather than with the people who have been right. Uh, mm-hmm. Just because I, I I, don't know. I think um, so much of the resilient economy has been based on falling inflation. And oh my God, people, I mean, actually it, it came out uh, 30 minutes ago, but I didn't see it. The consumer sentiment, uh, it's, oh my God. Yeah, when inflation falls from nine to, to five, People want to spend money, and it's it, it's just like a the the correlation between the rate of change of inflation and uh, consumer sentiment is enormous. Just like a year ago, when inflation was so high, and people said consumer thing has fallen off a cliff. It's like yeah, for for sure, it's it's, it's, it's all uh, relative. So I'd say it's kind of a wash, but I I wouldn't be shocked if that uh, that blue line falls and uh, we get a we get another blue bar. What do you think? I I've, if you've been listening to these last couple of weeks and even months, you've heard me agonize about this. I, I'm just not sure is the, is the honest answer. It would not surprise me either way. I think I have a naturally, maybe you call it realistic, maybe you call it pessimistic take. I, I tend to think that we probably, I just don't think you can do the intense experimentation that Federal Reserve and global central banks did and not 
feel some sort of feel some sort of repercussion. The only explanation that I can really think, the only explanation that's really made sense to me is that there actually is still stimulus going on right now. Running a $2 trillion deficit per year is incredible stimulus, but it's not the interest rate driven monetary stimulus that we've been used to for the last, you know, since 2008. So that could be what is propping up economic activity in markets. And that is that is the story that sort of neatly makes sense and fits to me. So I, I don't have a great explanation for you. I apologize for asking that. Enough. Oh, I've got I've got another. Yeah. You yeah. know, the, the last one that has always that's made sense to me as well is. So this is a chart of S&P 500 construction materials. This is obviously not the only way to look at the health of the construction and the real estate sector. But, you know, if we if we showed a chart of, of home builders here as well, that would be screaming along and upwards. The framework that I've had for a while, and I got to give Eric Bismagian of EPB Macro credit for this, was sort of this four-part cycle for upturns and downturns and reflexivity in the overall economy, which is everything starts with interest rates. And then that sets into motion either a positive or negative reinforcing cycle, wherein interest rate sec sensitive sectors such as housing, right? So there's a change in monetary accommodation by interest rates. Let's say it's downward, negative. So then the first thing that gets impacted is you know, re residential real estate or real estate in general is extremely interest rate sensitive. Yeah, right. So, so it's negative. In, uh, the Sorry. Uh, interest rate it's change a, is positive. Interest rates go up. Mortgage yes, rate, let's say, go up. Go yeah. from three percent to seven percent, and that impact on the housing market is itself negative. So, uh, you know, mortgage financing falls off a cliff. Refinancing goes down even more, and that's what we saw in twenty twenty two. But we've had a yes, rebound. yes, thank you, Jack. And then that has that has a two faceted impact, which is one, the wealth effect. So most of people's wealth is tied up in their home. So when the price of their home goes down, they feel less wealthy, they spend less, and that has downstream effects. Then the other impact is. It's kind of this phrase, housing is the economy. There are so many sectors that employ a lot of people, ship a lot of, uh, you know, buy a lot of commodities that's dependent on housing. You know, it could be everything from white goods to things like lumber, et cetera, et cetera. So once that starts to happen, then the next, the next impact of that is a decrease in sort of profit margins, right? That could be, you know, the a combination of like the construction companies, the white goods companies, anything that's selling or sort of, you know, related to the housing cycle. Those all start to turn down. Once those uh, margins get squeezed, companies will make the rational choice. Instead of you know losing profits, they'll they'll let people go. So that's unemployment, and that's that that's that whole swing. And the thing that we've missed thus far in this cycle, that's why we're looking at this chart, is housing has been considering the the rise in mortgage rates. It's been remarkably resilient, I would say. So. That's another explanation for why, why you know things might have um, been more resilient than we thought. We we've talked about housing on the show quite a bit. It's been more resilient than certainly I thought it would. So maybe that's another explanation as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's perhaps more than resilient. It's it's reaccelerated as you saw, you know, just in the the chart of those construction materials and the, the home builders. I think the narrative going around, and again, it is so easy, Mike, to after something has happened, assign a narrative to it. So oh, I've yeah. done, you know, it's so so easy to do. And this is what people, people are saying, that uh, the, because mortgage rates are high, yes, fewer people want to buy homes, but uh, a lot fewer people want to sell their homes because they're locked in at that 3% rate. So why would, you know, they're going to incur a 
you know, uh, mark to market losses if they were, you know, uh, a, a trader because if, when they, when they re, 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 uh, repay, so it doesn't make sense for them to do that. So therefore not a lot of people are selling their homes. So people who want to buy homes, even though there may be you know, fewer of them, they've got to go to the new home market and the new home market is built by home builders. And so th- their pricing has been uh, strong. So this has been very, very surprising to me. And it's, it's kind of one of those things, you know, if you were short the home builders in, January, like it, it didn't work, and it didn't. Eventually, you know, bears have to uh, stop becoming bears, not because for some of you for intellectual purity, but just because like they're gonna, you know, lose all their money. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On the Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah, well said, Jack. Well said. So I think that's the that that's the challenge out there if you're if you're in markets and you're trying to develop a viewpoint on this stuff. It's it's been a it's been a tricky one. And not a lot of people have called this exactly right. That's why I wanted to just give a little bit of credit to Michael Howell, who frankly, so far, I think deserves the gold medal in terms of the folks that I follow in terms of sort of predicting what was gonna happen here. So Absolutely. I also throw uh, a gold medal to Juliet de Klerk. Who's been mm. very right? I've I've only had her on once or twice, but uh, yeah, she was very early with her higher for longer and inflation and uh, the soft landing call, which was so yeah. unpopular at the time. I can't even begin. But but Mike, I've just got these uh, earnings. They got the numbers in front of me. So you know, mm. 2020, 2021, huge corporate profit boom in in the U.S. You know, everyone knows that. But in the fourth quarter of twenty twenty two, year over year, it actually was negative, uh, a contraction of 1.6% from the fourth quarter of 2021. Again, maybe companies were over-earning in 2021. And then in the first quarter of 2023, profits declined 2.8% year over year from the first quarter of 2022. It's projected, again, it hasn't happened yet, but it's projected, it's earnings season is coming up, that for the second quarter, which actually ends uh, today or tomorrow, um, profits will decline 5.1%. So the earnings... It's not that they've uh, been, you know, amazing. It's just that they've outperformed the very negative expectations. Uh, interestingly, fourth quarter profits for 2023 are expected to grow 11%. So, uh, as the stock market's been going up, uh, you know, analysts who work at these Wall Street firms, they've been increasing their estimates. And you know, I'd like to think that they're doing, you know, diligent uh, company by company analysis of of what these companies are going to earn and. Many of them do, and I'm gonna say all of them involve that in the process. But I think a lot of it is, you know, hey, the S&P is up up 20. Uh, you know, my job is going to be on the line. My boss is going to ask questions if I don't raise my forecast. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's what it's one of the challenges. You know, my heart goes out to the equity analysts. They do a great job, and you know, many of them are some of the brightest minds. I think uh, on why well, they're they're very very smart people. But it yeah. also there's sort of there's the inherent conflict of interest that's embedded there, right? And it's, they're, an inher- they're- it's an incredibly tough job to say 
what's going to happen in the future. I also just want to throw a theory by you, Mike, which is that sure. the uh, circles of finance, tech, media, and maybe I'd involve crypto in, in there as well, and then sort of small, mis- middle-sized business owners, they have had a pessimistic view of the economy, which is actually a little bit more pessimistic than reality. And I, th- I think that you know, that's kind of a, a lot of you know, who we know and our, our listeners are you know, finance, tech, crypto, media, so small business owners. So if you're in finance, tech, uh, media, and crypto, it's a tough job market. So you know, a lot of the people you know are, are having a, a tough time. So that's your world. And you know, you hear someone say that you're they're in a recession, and you're like, yeah, I, I know it. I've got you know, got friends who are looking for work. Like, what is this tight labor market everyone's talking about? It's it's BS. But I mean, you know, tech is only like four percent of the of the labor market. So I and then small business owners. I think you know a lot of uh, them who you know, employ service workers are saying, oh my god, like it's I'm be, I'm being squeezed because you know wages from paying my workers are going up so much. But I actually think that it's understandable why those five sort of categories would have a blinkered view of the economy, but it is a blinkered view, and I actually think that uh, the the whole economy has been a lot stronger than people in those groups, and I obviously would include myself uh, would say. So I think that's kind of a bias that you know, if you work in financial media, a lot of people you know you know are either bankers or you know media, and it's it's a tough business right now. But the reality is that it's kind of not a tough business for many many sectors of the labor market, which are many times larger than media and finance and crypto. Yeah, I would agree with you there, Jack. I would agree. The reality is, uh, no matter how you want to talk about it, you you can't just paint the economy with one gigantically broad brush. And there's going to be a lot of different, there are a lot of different folks out there with very different realities. So I would agree with that. And we've we've called the effect that you just described on this program, a white collar recession, which frankly, I feel like is pretty accurate. And if you return to the the housing story that we were just talking about, a lot of this fits, right? So there was initially a sell-off in the interest rate sensitive sectors. So Tech, you know, really got slammed. That's been very public. You know, everyone's seen those sort of graphs of the amount of layoffs. It was headlines for, you know, Amazon laying people off, Facebook laying people off, Microsoft laying people off. Again, they context wasn't necessarily there. They're still way above where they were in terms of employee headcount going into 2020. So I always thought those were a little bit misleading or, or lacking a little bit of context. But you know, the reality is those are not the the employers of those are not the folks that employ most people in the economy. And housing is kind of a, in all of the sectors that touch housing, are much larger employer of blue collar job, which frankly outweigh the white collar jobs by quite a bit. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, got a few more things to cover. So can we do, kind of do a, a lightning round? Let's do a lightning uh, round, yeah. Yeah, if you want to start with chart four and then go to three and two. So I'll just start. The, the Federal Reserve has... You know, a variety of facilities to lend to the banking system. Traditional one is the discount window, also known as the mm-hmm. primary credit facility. We mentioned in the uh, er, earlier in our conversation, and that discount window, I actually believe, uh, goes back to the founding of the Federal Reserve Bank, very, very early days. Mm-hmm. What is not uh, old is the bank term funding program, which was announced two days after the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and allowed banks to borrow from the Federal Reserve. But they could value the collateral at par. So if they bought a bond at $100, that it, if they had to trade in the market was $80, they could get $100 for that. So it's very attractive. Also, the bank term funding program allows banks to borrow for, a, as, as the word term would suggest, up to one year. 
uh, so 365 days, whereas the discount window only allows up to 90 days. And that actually was, it used to not, uh, not be 90 days. That was lengthened uh, on March 15th, 2020. So something in March, something, if something's going on in March, of course, you know, March 15th, 2020, uh, you know, <laughs> global financial liquidity crisis. Um, so there are a variety of reasons why the bank term funding program is more attractive to than the discount window. So it allows banks to value the collateral par, discount window doesn't. It's uh, allows banks to refinance uh, up to 365 days. So if they if a bank borrows for a uh, one year at uh, you know five percent and then interest rates go to three percent, they can pay it back and, and reborrow at three percent. So they have that optionality, which is really important, especially when a lot of banks are short interest rate optionality. Uh, I guess not not inherently, but like they own all these bonds. That's that's what I'm saying. So mm. I kind of made if you can show the the chart uh, in in late March. Uh, discount window borrowing was in blue and BTFP was in red. And discount window borrowing actually s- spiked really hard out of the gate. Uh, I don't know, like $70 billion rough, 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 around there. And bank term funding program was like kind of uh, slow to get on its feet. But I just, you know, talking to bankers and hearing things that it's like, why would you ever borrow from the discount window if you could borrow from the bank term funding program? In every way, it seems preferable. So I made the you know, prediction that. If if the banks had to rely on the Federal Reserve borrowing, it would come from the bank term funding program uh, in red rather than the discount window, and that has largely happened. Oh my God! And the simple, uh, easy is uh, on top of that is that bank term funding program rates was cheaper than the discount window because of the way the yield curve was. Um, So if you after right after March, uh, the fall of Silicon Valley Bank, all the hikes were kind of priced out, cuts were priced in. And so it was a very downward sloping curve, like starting from the very, very po- point. Um, so uh, if you could borrow further out, borrow one year, that's cheaper than borrowing at 90 days. Where interestingly now, that's no longer the case. So actually, if you go to chart three, primary c- credit facility discount window is 5.25%. Bank term funding program is 5.41%. And I think a lot of that has to do with the short-term structure of the yield curve because the uh, borrowing rate for the BTFP is the uh, one-year overnight index swap plus 10 basis points, and primary credit is just the upper Fed funds rate. So not ironically, but like a, a twist of fate is that the more higher for longer becomes the dominant narrative, and the market thinks that the Fed will continue to hike and hike and not cut. That actually makes uh, the bank term funding program less attractive than the discount window on a purely rate basis. Uh, that being said, the, the vast advantages that I earlier referenced, the optionality, the par, and uh, the, the, the refinancing, I still think that banks will rely on bank term funding program and that you know, unless things get really hairy, uh, banks will borrow from the, the, the BTFP. Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're absolutely right there. This is a little bit above my pay grade, but love the analysis, Jack. Thanks, Mike. And then got to give a quick shout out to uh, you know, our friend Joseph Wang, mm. who on his most recent blog post on, on fedguy.com talked about the death of LIBOR, which I actually think is today. So the, uh, I think it the, is. Yeah, let's zoom up here. Give us a give us the TLDR. What does this mean? Yeah. So LIBOR is uh, the London Interbank Offering Rate, and mm-hmm. it is basically what London banks would charge each other to borrow uh, on an overnight basis. And normally it's dollar LIBOR, so it's you know, Euro Dollar. That's why uh, it was called the Euro Dollar Market, the Euro Dollar Contract. And interestingly, even though this market did exist, the amount of derivatives on top of it were so much larger, especially towards the end of 
of LIBOR. So really, the LIBOR market was not that large, but the LIBOR contracts betting on what LIBOR would be in the future was immense. I mean, I think the, the literally the largest market in the world. So it's kind of like if Apple, you know, only traded the, uh, a few times a day the underlying stock, but there were millions of puts and calls and options and derivatives and futures, single stock futures that were being priced on it uh, every day. So yeah, the, the London market, I mean, it's kind of a a, a sham market and I, I don't know enough i haven't done enough research to, to have such a strong opinion but i mean it literally is just kind of calling bankers up and asking what's the rate and i mean that's why we transitioned away because there was a bid uh rigging scandal and like banks kind of lied about it to you know make short-term profit and for the global benchmark for interest rates you just can't have that level of of corruption i i think that it's much more damaging than just the sort of uh you know market losses that the system is losing to to people who are Corruption, it's it's damage to the integrity of the system. So I, I uh, cheer on the death of the euro dollar contract. And uh, now it's all SOFR, the secured overnight financing rate, which is a repo based on very secure uh, collateral, like I think just treasuries, I mean, general collateral. And the interesting thing is that this is pretty much a risk, a truly risk-free rate, whereas LIBOR interest rates actually went up during periods of stress, as you can see in April 2020, uh, as well as during 2008. So it was a cushion for banks. And th this is the point uh, Joseph's making in, the, in this chart, in his post, as well as in our interview with Robert McCauley, is that in periods of stress, banks are long loans. So they're long a construction loan at you know 3% plus LIBOR. So if LIBOR is at you know, 0.8%, LIBOR will actually go up in periods of stress. So their net income uh, goes up, whereas with SOFR, that will not be the case. So banks will not get that that ballast, which is an interesting thing because it's not a credit rate. It is a sort of a pure risk-free rate. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very uh, interesting, in, in, interesting day. And uh, I, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, Jack, I would tend to agree with you on that. All right, my friend, that was a great lightning round. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have here. we got to wrap it up, but yep. it's been, as always, a very fond mix of forward marginal guidance. We'll uh, just do it again soon my friend and uh, absolutely i gotta give a few plugs out so obviously my interview with robert mccauley already aired i did an oil talk with michael cow and alexander stahill tr truly two brilliant guys who really understand the, the oil market that should air soon i talked to a law professor about the federal home loan bank i'm speaking to edward chancellor with joseph wang soon and i also talked to daniel dimarchino booth so all those interviews should be out on forward guidance over you know the next let's say five days so people should uh, stay tuned for that excellent Thanks for that, Jack. We'll do it again soon, my friend. Sounds Cheers. good. Cheers.